You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little show, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, guys, before we get started with the podcast, let me get in another plug here right off the top for our Patreon page. Talk a little more about that. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, that's it, five bucks a month, and you would like to see the podcast keep going strong, please consider becoming a patron of our show. Go to patreon.com slash island and sign up. Again, it's five bucks a month, one day a month. Skip Starbucks, go to Wawa, there's your five bucks. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. The chat is always so much fun. I love that. That's why I've incorporated it into our um, our episode reviews because they're, they're some of the stuff and the questions people ask are just so great and so much fun. And I leave out some of the crazy stuff because every once in a while we do get some really funny things on there. So come and join us by joining our Patreon page. Let me send a sincere thanks to our newest patron, David, great name, my friend. Welcome to the family, David. And thank you so much for your support. Again, folks, go to patreon.com slash Oak Island to sign up and support the podcast. Remember, five bucks a month, that's it. You can cancel anytime. And if you prefer not to do that monthly thing, no problem. I get that. You can make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo using my musician account. That's at Dave McBride Music. I'm a musician by trade. That's my sort of virtual tip jar. So that's really the only place I have to do it. I haven't set one up for Oak Island because uh, I just, you know, I, the patron pages, I think, offers you a little bit more and, and uh, certainly is a lot more fun. So anyway, all right. As most of the world is, I am dealing with a cold, something of a cold here. So I apologize for the maybe the coughing <clears throat> and those type of things throughout the course of the podcast. I'll do my best to contain it, um, and I want to start off today's podcast with some emails and messages from you, the listeners. We've got some great ones today, and we've got to catch up. We have an extra week there, um, and I want to start off with a couple that are very critical of the show, so if you're a person who does not like to hear criticism of the show, you might want to fast forward just a couple of minutes, but we have two here, and uh, I want to give them their uh, chance to be heard here, as I do for all of our listeners. Let's begin with Dennis, who writes, Dave, I am certain you've spoken to this before, but the narrator for Oak Island is beginning to make me nauseous. If we weren't able to record and skip the blathering, I wouldn't even watch and just listen to you for the highlights. By skipping the rehash and reintroductions, we cut watching time by at least half, if not more, and the dramatic pauses make it sound as if they're going to reveal the next America's Got Talent winner. If, as you say, they have so much unaired material, why do they keep wasting time with this? Is the narrator someone's poor nephew who gets paid time by, <laughs> by time on air? Thank you for giving us objective information with reminders to look at previous episodes if we don't know what you refer to and a chance for me to blow some steam off. My old dog thinks I'm yelling at him to shut up already, so this may help. Thanks again, Dennis. Dennis, let me just clarify first uh, for everybody listening. One, it was not me who was presenting this criticism of the narrator. Nope, it's not Dave. No need to write me. No need to yell at me. This was Dennis. Dennis had this criticism. 
But two, Dennis, just all joking aside, I think your beef is really with the writers and the directors, right? And not the narrator himself. The narrator is a guy named Robert Clotworthy, as most of you know, and he is actually really a terrific narrator with an incredible resume that includes multiple films, TV shows, even video games. He just reads what's written for him and he does a great job, but it's what is written for him. That's where the issue lies, right? Believe me, Dennis, if I didn't point out that it was you who did this and not me, I would have gotten waves of emails, DMs, bad reviews on iPad, on iTunes for 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 saying that, uh, you know, this about uh, Clotworthy. So I'm sorry to call you out there, um, but I don't I, again, it's not Robert Clotworthy. It's the writers. And that's what I always have a problem with. Robert Clotworthy's style could be good for people and bad for others. It's I'm kind of neutral on it. I think he does a good job at what he's reading and good job of showing emotion in his voice. Being something of a DJ myself and a voice guy, I, I appreciate that in him. Um, my issue, my beef is always with uh, the writing. And you're welcome. You know, you're welcome for giving you a place to blow off the steam. That's what we're here for. Great email. Let's go now to Joe. Again, another criticism writes, hi, Dave, just a few words in response, support of the email from Bernie that you read for the Great Flood episode. I, and you can go back to that one and take a listen to that. I agree 100% that if Laird is excited, I'm excited. Again, well, I'll just help you out here. Bernie wrote an email talking about how he's really uh, excited about the fact that Laird seems to really be excited by these things on lot five. And here is, this is uh, Joe's response. He said, if Laird is excited, I'm excited far more than I am. Anytime Marty or Jack or Robert Clotworthy mentioned treasure for the 12th billionth time, whether or not they ever find a single doubloon, it's obvious that something remarkable happened on Oak Island. And I'd rather watch 11 more episodes filled with Laird, Helen, Emma, and Miriam doing real science than one more episode of Terry cutting open tubes of mud, followed by wild speculations about a treasure that should, that was probably retrieved by the original depositors 300 years ago. The History Channel should understand that the show's remaining loyal viewers are still around for the science and historical mystery, not some silly curse or non-existent treasure. Once again, thanks for doing what you do, Joe. Guys, uh, Joe and Dennis, believe me, I get it, guys, right? I've said this many, many times, but for eight or nine years, this show was a Tuesday ritual for my wife and I. We would both sit down and watch together, talk about it, et cetera, et cetera. But... For me, those days are long gone. As soon as 9 p.m. hits on a Tuesday here in America, she's up putting the kid to bed or getting ready for work the next day and so on, taking little or no interest anymore in the show. So I hear these same things that you're saying each and every day. Nowadays, she usually gets up and says something with a little touch of snark, like, let me know if they find anything. I just don't feel the same way about the show. I love the show. The island fascinates me to no end, and that has nothing to do with treasure. It's the lost history and the challenges of trying to put all this information together. And the cool thing for me is over the last couple of years, despite the th things you might hear the narration say, I feel the team has turned in that direction to care more about the history than they are about a possibility of a treasure. It's the lost history. It's the challenge of trying to put this, all of this, all these pieces to the puzzle into something. But I do get it. I get what you're saying. I really do. Just remember, people have been looking for a treasure for over two centuries. 
a few seasons of a television show are not going to, you know, are a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean that is Oak Island, the Oak Island mystery. Can I tell, can you tell I've been watching a Christmas Carol a few times recently? Jacob Marley had a fascinating way with words. Anyway, thanks again, Joe. Thanks for your honesty here. Let's go now to an email from Patrick who writes, hi, Dave. I am a late arrival to the Oak Island mystery, but I have been eagerly soaking up the episodes and your podcast over the last couple of months. I love the archaeological mysteries. It's amazing how much history seems to have unfolded on this tiny island over a long period of time. I also enjoy watching the drilling and mining activities because I'm an environmental engineer. While I'm skeptic, I'm skeptic for there being any treasure, I hope to be surprised and find out that I'm wrong. There are three things I want to share my opinion on. The discrepancy in the depths of the tunnel under the garden shaft, the flood tunnel traps, and Aladdin's cave. When they were drilling near the baby blob to the west of the garden shaft, the wood framing for the tunnel was encountered around a depth of 95 feet. When they moved east of the garden shaft, they started encountering the same tunnel at a greater depth of about 110 feet. My depths might not be exact, but I recall you wondering about this discrepancy a couple of podcasts ago. When drilling, geologists typically measure the depth of the boring relative to the ground surface rather than an elevation based on sea level. Looking at the topography around the garden shaft, the area east of the garden shaft is on a bit of a hillside, and the ground level appears to be about 15 feet higher than the ground level over at the baby blob. The show didn't explain this, but if you count for that 15-foot difference in ground elevation, the two different depths reported on each side of the garden shaft would appear to be describing a tunnel at the same elevation. Okay, let me stop here. Patrick, I'm loving this email already. I can tell from this early stage in our relationship here that I'm going to be relying on your engineer's brain quite a bit in the future here. So uh, thank you so much. Anyway, Patrick continues. Next, I want to weigh in on the flood tunnels. And I hope I don't become all across as too much of a buzzkill. First, groundwater levels are very shallow on the island, which is to be expected when you're that close to the sea level, to, to sea level and a swamp. For example... You can see in the archaeological excavation on Lot 5 that there are times when shallow groundwater starts trickling into the round depression and they have to use a small sump pump to keep it drained. When excavating through the clay material in the money pit, they are encountering wet clay all the way down the hole. If you dig 10, 20, or 30 plus feet into wet clay, the hole is going to, get, is going to appear dry at first because water moves very slowly through clay. It may take a day or even weeks for the hole to fill up with groundwater, depending on how tight the clay formation is. When they reopened the garden shaft at the beginning of the season, I was not surprised to see that it had slowly filled up with groundwater to within several feet of the surface. Despite the narrator's claims, there is really no reason to think this is the result of a flood tunnel trap. In the last episode, they advanced the garden shaft deeper and were encountering a higher rate of groundwater or seawater infiltration into the shaft. This could be due to previous tunneling activities, creating preferential pathways through the clay formation. But it's also normal to encounter gravel and sand layers within a glacial formation that would allow water to flow more freely like this. From a geological perspective, I love seeing these effects manifest in torrential water pouring down the shaft, but I've heard I have a hard time believing it's due to anything but normal processes. Even so, I don't know how the previous depositors and searchers managed the water when digging their tunnels, which is yet another reason why I love the history of Oak Island. Well, let me interrupt here. Patrick, 
I can't speak for the depositors if there actually were any, but I can tell you that the searchers have not managed that money very well, that, that water very well at all, right? This water has not only defeated every single searcher who has tried digging in the money pit, it's also financially ruined more than one and even killed a couple, right? Anyway, Patrick continues. Finally, there is Aladdin's cave, which is located right about the existing limestone bedrock. Limestone dissolves in water and can create sinkholes and tunnels into bedrock uh, aquifers that can have strong current, as we saw when the down, in the downhole video. Since they haven't seen any wood in Aladdin's cave, this appears to be a natural formation. Still very cool to see and explore, but I hope they don't waste too much of their time and resources on this effort. Thanks for all your time and effort sharing the podcast and bringing a balanced perspective to the mystery. And fingers crossed I'm proved wrong this season and they find the treasure soon. Patrick. Yes, Patrick. We are going to need you to write in regularly here <laughs> and express your opinions on these things that I know nothing about and stuff that we've been talking about and wondering about for a long, long time. So uh, welcome to the pod, to the Digging Oak Island family. We're going to need you, my friend. Great, great stuff. Incredible perspective. And I thank you so much for taking the time to listen and for joining in on the discussion here. As I always like to say, man, I am forever stunned by the intelligence of my listenership. I mean, it just blows me away what you guys come up with. It's really incredible. Let's hear now from a listener named Tina who writes, Hi, Dave. I'm a big fan. Love the Oak Island team. They work with such camaraderie. And no one's opinion or theory seems to be shot down or discarded. Uh, each week I get out my portable s'mores maker and enjoy a tasty treat while watching the episodes. I don't care whether or not there is a treasure. I just love the story, findings, and the team. My husband, on the other hand, is an on-again, off-again watcher and skeptic. He made a comment this past episode. Why don't they just do an open mining excavation, excavation where they are putting all these boreholes? Wouldn't this quickly and efficiently answer the questions if there's a treasure or not? I also have another question. Isn't there a way for satellite scans in the area to be able to detect precious metals underground? I thought this technology was used for gold mining in other parts of the world. Thank you and love your podcast, Tina in Wisconsin. Tina, the open mining idea is something that has been discussed a number of times on the show. Um, not in the last year or two, but before that, they call it the big dig. It's expensive. It's a very, very long process. I mean, incredibly expensive. And one they simply have not yet committed to for whatever reasons, financial or, or however it might be. To, and to be honest, I have to say this, tr this too. I kind of agree with that decision. I really do. Um, because there just has not been the evidence yet coming out of the money pit to do something so big and so possibly destructive to the island and it's, you know, historical and natural past, right? Am I making sense? I mean, what have they found in the money pit to warrant such a massive project, right? Traces in water samples, bones, maybe some parchment paper here and there. Is that really enough to say that there's a treasure down there worthy of such an investment into such a project? Personally, I don't think so. And I think Marty Lagina and Craig Tester probably agree with me when they're off camera. And as far as that satellite thing goes, um, is that different from the scans they've already done, like the Muon scans or the seismic or the ground penetrating radar? Is there something else I'm not aware of here, Tina? Uh, and I'm asking seriously. I'm by no means an expert on this stuff, on what technologies are available. So if anybody out there knows of something different, something along the satellite line, please let me know. 
Uh, great questions, Tina. Hopefully we can get an answer for you on that last one there. Now to our friend Rob, who writes, David, enjoy your Christmas with family and friends, and look and I look forward to your next Oak Island podcast, last 2023 comments. What if we are mistakenly calling the following stone structure a wall and a stone structure was built to protect whatever is underneath it, and instead a stone structure is built to protect what's underneath it? And he included a photo of the wall from last year, that stone wall that people were looking at last year. And also in an earlier email, Rob asked, is it possible that the that the Lot 26 freshwater well is in fact a flood tunnel or pressure valve, water pressure valve? Uh, Rob, good questions. Um, the reason I put both of these together for you and didn't answer them separately is because I kind of have basically the same answer for both questions. And that is, you're talking about two features that were investigated. Those investigated investigations aired on television and then virtually forgotten about, at least up to this point. And what we know is if we don't hear anything about it again, about anything, about any investigation or any artifact, it's because the team has decided it's not worthy of any further investigation or talking about. It's just the show doesn't want us to know that. They want us to continue thinking that this is yet another uh, unsolved mystery of Oak Island. Look how they left the, um, the Samuel Ball site with a, a camera running into what could be a cellar and crickets after that, right? But rest assured, the guys who are on the island, especially since these projects that you're talking about here involved archaeologists, be sure that be sure that they have done way more work and talked a lot more about these things than we ever get to see or hear on the air. So if they've crossed them off the list, they have a good reason. My guess is with both of these things, that might be what's going on here. But let's revisit this idea and this question at the end of the season and maybe try and get Laird back on the show and ask him about them, right? All right. Let's go now to our friend Jeff, who writes, Hi, Dave. While we have a break in the show this week, I was taking the opportunity to reflect on my love for the show. It is only, it's the only show other than sports that I watch and look forward to every week and every season and ponder what is it exactly that I love so much about it. Jeff, we're exactly the same on that front. All I watch is sports and the Curse of Oak Island. That's really it. <laughs> anyway, Jeff continues. I mean, I've been watching the show for years, since the beginning, and really not that much has ever really happened in all that time, yet I'm still fascinated and compelled to watch every minute of every show. There has to be more to it than watching these people bumbling around the island, digging up ox shoes and pieces of wood and draining the swamp. And I think I figured it out. I don't know about you, but I grew up watching Gilligan's Island, truly one of the best, funniest, and most feel-good comfort shows of all time. Show after show, they would try to figure out a way to get off the island, coming up with all kinds of different strategies and seemingly good and creative ideas, only to have something go wrong time and time again. And even though they weren't successful, it was always enjoyable to watch them try. In fact, deep down, it was preferable that they failed because if they were successful, the show would end. And I've realized the Curse of Oak Island pushes all these same buttons. Of course, instead of trying to get off the island, they are trying to find treasure. And similarly, show after show, they come up with various strategies to accomplish their goal, only to be foiled time and time again. But they always look around with a nod and smile that they still have each other, and tomorrow is another day. Even the show's characters have similarities. The Laginas are like the Howls. Jack and Gary are like Gilligan and the Skipper. Emma Culligan is like Marianne. And Laird is like the Professor. So my conclusion is the Curse of Oak Island, in many ways, 
is like Gilligan's Island for grown-ups and contains many of the same endearing qualities of that great classic show. And even if they never find a treasure, it's been great week after week watching the Fellowship of the Island characters scheming and planning to try and failing to achieve their goal. But as we all know, the real treasure is the journey and the friendships that are found along the way. Happy holidays, Dave. All the best. Your loyal listener and friend, Jeff. Jeff, happy holidays. Happy New Year. I, too, loved Gilligan's Island as a kid, and I think your email here is really sort of the mic drop moment for today's email section of the podcast. What more could I add? Thank you so much. Okay, folks, that's all for this emails this week. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right. Now, last week, we did not get a new episode of Digging Oak I- of the Curse of Oak Island, sorry. And we also didn't get an episode of Digging Oak Island because of that. But we did have a new episode of Maddie Blake's Little Drilling Down show, and that was called The Lot 5 Enigma. Now, usually these shows are tons of fun to watch, but don't really offer too much new to discuss here on the podcast. However, this episode provided a couple of pretty cool nuggets, pretty noteworthy moments here that are worth mentioning, and some of which I think are actually going to help us put some context to the Lot 5 discussions that we've been having and will continue to have here on the podcast, help to put them into some better context. The episode starts in the war room. This is the usual type of recap discussion that we are used to seeing on these shows with some of the teams seated around the table and others on the screens on a video call. And yes, I too did notice how all the females were for some reason put on one screen by themselves, all in the same room. <laughs> like as if this was the room for the girls. I, I was, was I, I thought it was strange. <laughs> uh, I, I don't disagree with those who uh, called that one out and thought that was weird. But anyway, um, you know, that's not what I'm here to talk about, right? So let's get into it. Instead, I want to point out something that Rick Laginas said during this meeting regarding the work of Robert Young the lot's previous owner. One of the things that we've been discussing here in this uh, are the numerous artifacts that Young found during his years exploring on Oak Island. Now, we know now that the team, in fact, does not have access to those artifacts. We've talked about We've talked about this a bit. Rick tells Maddie in the uh, war room meeting, quote, Robert Young was kind enough to donate his materials and his artifacts to St. Mary's University, and that's where it currently resides. And we are hopeful to work with the academic institution to get access to these artifacts so the lab can analyze them. Now, these artifacts that Robert Young found over his years uh, working on the island um, have been photographed, posted on the website, oakislandlot5.com, and they've been up there for years and years. So we know what he found. But we have been wondering um, why the team hasn't taken the time to try and correlate what he found or connect them in some way with what they've been finding this summer and, and the end of last summer as well. For instance, did he find more Roman coins? Did any of the artifacts that Young found also match chemically with those uh, artifacts that we keep hearing about in the William Phipps uh, homestead site? Uh, now, we know why these questions have not been answered, and that is they don't have them, right? So we get that. We've been asked that quite a bit. It seems a bit strange that working with St. Mary's would 
be an issue or a delay of any kind since they've done so much work with that university in the past. But who knows? I don't want to get out over my skis here and speculate on why that might be. But I thought that little nugget information was at least worthy of a mention here on the podcast. And there's more. Even more from this same discussion in the war room. Marty says this interesting quote, quote, but what's most perplexing is, think about it, in the context of the history of Oak Island, Lot 5 doesn't mean anything. The boundaries weren't there when this was going on, so why would these artifacts we're finding on 5 be coincident with the boundaries that probably didn't exist? And that really got me thinking, why are they? Couldn't that maybe tell us something? Doesn't that at least present the possibility that these artifacts didn't make it to Oak Island until after the boundaries were formed and the lots then sold off? Seems at least worthy of consideration in my mind. Marty is correct. Why wouldn't you also be finding these type of things in the bordering lots, you know? Um, (laughs) If this was indeed a massive encampment or something like that, those are the words that they're going to use. Um, why wouldn't you find them in other neighboring places? It's interesting to think about. Now, next they head over to Lot 5 itself. There's lots of the same discussion we're used to here with Maddie about Templars and Xena Halpern, lots of recapping of what they've found this year. But towards the end of this scene, I think we get a little peek into what has been interesting uh, or what has been interesting, say it that way, Laird Niven so much about this circular feature that they've been looking at uh, in the recent weeks, right? He says what all of this is pointing to is the possibility of, quote, other unrecorded people in the mid-1700s doing something we're not quite sure of. Again, this might not be as sexy as uh, a narrative as a Templar voyage uh, to hide the Ark of the Covenant, but it's certainly something worthy of an archaeologist's interest as this is really starting to point towards some significant undocumented history and one that the archaeologists are um, really surprised about and really fascinated with and really um, excited for, as we've mentioned. Now, with that in mind, Maddie and Laird head over to this circular feature and we get a really good look at where we are at this with this thing here, a better look even than we get in this week's episode, a much better look. And we also get some historical clarification. We get a nice shot here of the entirety of the excavation and just how big it really is. Laird says, quote, it's comprised of two quite large interior walls, which is very confusing to us. So what we thought was a simple structure is turning into something more complicated and more confounding. Laird also says, and this is what I mean by historical clarification, quote, well, I actually visited this site with Robert Young in the late 1990s, and at that time, There was no circular feature. It was a rectangular depression. It seems Young found this. He got Laird to look at it. And then, as I think Maddie might say here, decorated it in quotes by laying out what Marty Lagina called an apron of stones around it. Now, that helps, at least in my mind, to clarify this whole thing a little bit and give us some insight into what Young's involvement really was. We can only hope that we're right on this. Uh, and I hope I'm making sense for what I'm saying here. We hope that I'm, I'm still a little confused by how it turned circular from rectangular, but be that as it may, uh, we're going to let this sort of evolve as it seems to be doing all the time. Now, the only other interesting thing about this drilling down episode was that even with lot five and all these artifacts, they're attaching so much importance to 
they're still kind of all over the place when it comes to theories about what this was and when it happened. We have at least three theories discussed here at length, the Templars, the Phipps, and the Duke d'Anville. And now also, the team seems to be reconciling themselves to a theory that includes multiple visits over multiple centuries. Rick says, quote, I just struggle with all that work having been done one time. I think there was a singular purpose, but I think it might have been implemented over time, perhaps generation, generationally, perhaps longer. And here is where Dave here gets a little skeptical. Two things. One, the Templars hiding the menorah or the Templars hiding the treasures of, uh, of King Solomon or whatever it might be, the treasure of the Concepcion and the money the Duke Donville had are not related in any means. So even the theories we're discussing don't relate to this idea that Rick is saying, but also the more time whatever happened on Oak Island took, the more people get involved, the harder this becomes and the more unlikely it becomes that it actually was kept secret. Now, having said that, Rick also hints to another field trip coming soon that might help define this theory a bit. And I'll also tell you, I have a couple of folks that were looking to get on the air here on a podcast very, very soon uh, that might also help with that. How's that for a cliffhanger? All right, it is time to discuss Season 11, Episode 8 of The Curse of Oak Island called Avoid at All Costs. Get it? Avoid. Not avoid. Avoid. Funny, huh? And again, this is going to be a short episode review, guys, because there really wasn't much to discuss here uh, for the podcast. There actually was more in last week's Drilling Down, which is unusual, but it was another fun episode. Another one of what I like to call sort of a nuts and bolts episode, right? where they're doing a lot of work and I love fascinated by that work and I love to see it just not a lot really that we can do much to expand on here. So let's, let's just get into it. We'll start with lot five. The first thing we see is the team looking at this circular feature we've been talking about, which has been covered like with a tarp in anticipation of the storms that we talked about last week. Now, if you don't remember last July, Nova Scotia was hit hard by some of the worst storms and some of the worst flooding it had ever seen. And the county where Oak Island resides was one of the worst hit. So uh, they were preparing all these sites for, uh, you know, potential damage. Now, despite the tarp that they had on there, depression is still filled with water. So they start to pump it out. And then apparently they're going to need to wait a day or so for it to dry out sufficiently in order to keep excavating. So while they're doing that, while they're waiting for that drying to happen, Carmen Legg arrives to meet with Laird Niven, Emma Culligan, uh, Jack Begley, and Craig Tester to look over a couple of artifacts found, I believe, both of them last week on Lot 5. The first artifact, Carmen says, is part of a clasp for a small chest. The second artifact is what he calls a crude nail. He dates them both from the 1600s to the early 1700s. Now, I am by no means excited that this clasp was from a chest where the treasure was stored because, I mean... Come on, guys. Wouldn't that be in the money pit? <laughs> what, what are you saying? They put a treasure in there, dumped it out, and kept the chest? It doesn't make any sense. But these dates are all starting to point to the same time frame here. And the important thing is that the time frame would indicate an occupation of the island that is something 
uh, certainly undocumented in history. Also, Emma notes that the chemical makeup of the nail is also similar to the William Phipps artifacts, which we've been talking about a lot recently and is also very interesting. And I got to tell you, it's about time we get some clarification on what they're trying to say here. Are we starting to think with this information that Phipps came to Oak Island and built a house over there and stayed there for some time? That seems to be the conclusion we're trying to draw from all this. But interestingly enough, no one's actually coming out and saying that, right? So soon the archaeologists are back working uh, at the circular depression, which is now dried out. And Moya McDonald and Helen Sheldon find what they determine to be a barrel strap, I assume, part of the metal hoop that keeps an old keg together, right? So also during the scene, Jack makes a remark about how this feature could be the encampment of the original depositors. Uh, meaning, uh, you know, whoever dug out the money pit, however many years ago, lived over here while they were doing that work, while they're doing whatever they did. Again, are we saying that maybe was Phipps? Why not just say that? And also, I'm not really sure, Jack, I'm sorry, how much sense that makes, since this really isn't very close at all to the money pit. It's like nearly a mile away. It's got to take quite some time to walk through the woods all the way over there to do whatever work you want to do every day. Why wouldn't you build it a little closer than that? doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility, just saying there's a lot of ways to sort of debunk that a little bit. So later on, Jack kind of uh, speaks for all of us, though, when he starts um, talking to Jamie Kuba about how he just really can't visualize what this thing is, how this all lines up and how it's laid out. Uh, again, if he got to see the drilling down episode, he might have had a better shot at that. So Jamie starts talking about how she thinks what they're seeing here is possibly the remains of a stone wall that might have collapsed in on itself. So she calls in Laird, who clarifies that a bit and says, quote, what we have here is the outline of a fairly large structure that for some reason was abandoned and either collapsed or was filled in or a combination of both. Now, listen. I think we're on to something fascinating here for sure with this Lot 5 artifact or this Lot 5 depression, I mean. Something that could really help clarify the early uh, European era history of the island. But John on the Patreon made a great point when he said, quote, an interview with a family member or friend of Robert Young would be fantastic. John, you're 100% correct. And let me also say this. And by the way, it would have been nice to have him interviewed before he passed away because he has been alive since the show's been going on for sure. But, uh, you know, you're all, let me also say this, maybe a deeper dive by Laird into his time with Mr. Young in the 1990s. I'm sure he took pictures, right? Uh, the things that we talked about in the Drilling Down review. That would also be very, very interesting and help us to contextualize all of this, right? But for some reason, we aren't getting this. In fact, like I said, the single mention of Laird's earlier visit to see this feature that looked different then came only in last week's Drilling Down and not in a proper episode of the show, which way more people watch. So why would the show want to sort of hide that little fact? That's curious. All right, now on to the money pit. At the opening of the episode, Marty is joined by Steve Guptill and, of course, Scott Barlow to meet with the Dumas mining guys to talk about the water that's been filling up the garden shaft. 
Marty suggests the flooding could be from the booby trap system, but as we learned in the email section from our new best friend Patrick, that is most likely not the case. But the issue remains, right? No matter where the water is coming from, they need to get control of it before they can really do much work in their in that shaft at all. So Dumas tells them they found some voids on the outside of the walls, on the shaft that could be the source of the flooding, outside the walls of the shaft that they built, that could be the source of the flooding, and that they're working now to fill those voids. Now listen, I'm not a miner, nor do I know much about mining at all, but doesn't this seem like something that would be a common issue in digging shafts like this? I mean, everybody here, including the Dumas guys, are acting like they're kind of flummoxed by this, you know? And that just seems a little strange to me. Why would they be? But again, I know nothing about mining, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that one. Next, we see the team back at what they're calling Aladdin's Cave to do another sonar scan in the underground void. The scan starts producing a 3D map of the cave, and the guys uh, see two edges of the cave on this little 3D sonar scan that maybe perhaps look a bit too straight for what we would call a natural formation. It's hard to tell but that is the only thing on this scan that we're seeing here that maybe kind of looks, I don't know, maybe perhaps too straight for a natural formation. It's hard to tell, but that's the only thing that made me kind of scratch my head and think it was even remotely suspicious or possibly man-made or even worth looking into, right? So they decide to drill a new hole down into the cave, and they dub this hole L13.5, which they soon do uh, start to drill, and then after the drill reaches the cave, they drop down a high-res camera. They get a look around, and honestly, I see nothing here that looks out of the ordinary, nothing at all. Uh, the guys get all excited about this dark spot in the images, which they think could be an entrance. I don't see, I mean, we know water moves under there. I mention this all the time, so I don't know why there wouldn't be an entrance. But uh, for some reason, the narrator even calls it, quote, possible man-made entrance. <laughs> Honestly, I can't see anything here that looks at all man-made. In fact, Darren on the Patreon remarked, or Dara on the Patreon, uh, quote, why the excitement over the cave? I just cannot fathom how they think it's man-made. Uh, Dara, I, I 100% agree with you on this point. Um I'm just not seeing it yet. I, I think just like you and any of the images um, that we're seeing here just don't look at all like anything but a natural underwater underground formation. Anyway, the images they're getting start to get uh, murky as the camera, I guess, is kicking up some silt. So they bring the camera up and that's that. Oh, and let me just add a quick note here, folks, for the patron. Speaking of the Patreon live chat, guys, friends, we need more of you to come into the chat next week. Uh, I mean, you've been good all week. We've had quite a good participation, but this week, only a couple. I mean, the participation we had, Dara, John, it was great, you know, I mean, and, and whoever else I might have missed. Um, but we need to get everybody back in. I know it was you know, holidays just ending, first day back at work for many of us, and maybe you just couldn't stay up that late to join us. But no excuses next week, patrons. We need our normal crowd back in here to get your take on this. Let's do this thing. Anyway, let's finish up. Later, we're back at the Garden Shaft speaking, speaking I'm sorry, with Roger Fortin, uh, Fortin from Dumas. He says they found a void on the other side of one of the shaft walls, and he puts in a GoPro on a selfie stick to get some images. What they see looks pretty compelling to me. There is obviously some wood piled up on the floor in whatever this cavity is. Uh, and that could, it's definitely something worth looking at. I mean, a look searcher to me, but who knows, right? 
they're going to need to get into this void if they're going to have going to have a good look at it. But I got to tell you, folks, that ain't going to happen until Dumas can get control of the flooding. And that's something no one has been able to do. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. There is um, a new episode next week, so we're back on the normal schedule. Uh, so come and join us. Don't forget, you can really help the show out by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more uh, and to join up. And if you prefer, you can make a one-time donation uh, to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Patreon. Five bucks a month, cancel any time, or Venmo at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, uh, then you can do so by giving us a five-star rating and a review anywhere you get your podcasts. A big thank you to everyone who's left us a five-star rating already. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do that, and thank you especially for the kind words, guys. You can also follow the show on Facebook. Just put an at Digging Oak Island into your search bar. And if you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, you can do so by uh, sending me an email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. That is my preferred way. You can try DMing me on Facebook, um, but I don't always see that. I don't know why. I'm really not good at this stuff. Email is the way to go. Also, keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the public, just make a note of that for me. Well, it's crown time, folks. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.